Hey everyone, this is Cody, and you are listening to Tent Talks. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Heather Browning about animal ethics. Dr. Browning received her PhD from the Australian National University in 2020, and she's currently working as a postdoctoral research officer in animal sentience and welfare at the London School of Economics as a part of the Foundations of Animal Sentience project. In this episode, we talk about a variety of different topics in animal ethics, and we discuss some specific papers that Dr. Browning has written on the topic. Some things that we talk about, but this certainly isn't exhaustive, we discuss the distinction between a rights view of animal ethics versus a more utilitarian welfare view of animal ethics. We talk about where to draw the line of animal consciousness, how to know whether an animal is or isn't sentient. We discuss the horrors of factory farming, whether what's called management euthanasia promotes animal welfare within the context of zoos, and whether de-extinction projects promote animal welfare, whether bringing animals back from extinction is something that we should be doing. So a bunch of different interesting topics here. I want to thank Dr. Browning for coming onto the podcast, and buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. A place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. So yeah, thank you uh, for doing this podcast. So it's my understanding that you used to be a zookeeper from the Twitterverse and that you've turned into a philosopher. So I thought we could start just by having you uh, explain what it was like being a zookeeper and kind of what made you want to become a philosopher. Yeah, so as I started out my sort of working life in zookeeping, I was at the time a science student at the Australian National University studying zoology and saw an advert in the local newspaper looking for volunteers at the zoo, which seemed like a fun sort of thing to do uh, in an afternoon. So I went along and basically signed up as a volunteer and from that fell in love with the work there. So um, just looking after the animals, spending the days involved with them. So once I finished my degree, I went and got a job and since then I've worked at a number of different zoos uh, for I think about 15 years. I worked across different zoos as a zookeeper and welfare officer, uh, which was just yeah, extremely rewarding, very fulfilling. I loved spending time with the animals, but I also still had this, I guess, academic part of me that was interested in going back and doing some more study and getting into some of the theoretical issues and particularly when I was working with the animals and I was working as an animal welfare officer, thinking a lot about how it is that we measure the welfare of animals, how we conceive of their welfare. And so that made me want to go back and do some study. And at the time I did another undergraduate degree in philosophy and pushed that through into a PhD program where essentially I was looking at the philosophical ways of investigating those particular questions. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I love philosophers that do more applied philosophy, more practical philosophy, stuff that's not completely, you know, this high level abstract conceptual engineering stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, I've been interested in animal ethics issues ever since I really started reading uh, Peter Singer. And I thought maybe you could help me think through some of these things and we could get a bit deeper into some of your paper. So I'll just kind of give you a brief history of how I've come into this. So I read a bit of Peter Singer's work. I think it's uh, animal Liberation on Animal Liberation. I forget the name of the animal book. Animal Liberation, yeah. Animal Liberation. Um, so the argument that he, he introduced me to this term called speciesism, which I had never come across before, this idea that humans are morally superior just in virtue of us being a member of the human species and animals are morally inferior because they're not a member of the human species. And he makes this really convincing argument, right, that speciesism is just kind of a morally... Um, arbitrary way of dividing up the moral landscape. And it it's, can really be likened to things like speci uh, sexism, racism. In, in one sense, it seems like it's almost as morally arbitrary as that. And I thought that was really compelling. And then he went on to argue that, yeah, really the mark of morality is sentience, right? It's like uh, Jeremy Bentham said, right? The question is not whether they can talk or whether they can think or whatnot, it's whether they can suffer. And I thought that was, uh, that struck me as being a convincing way to 
emphasized the mark of morality, right? And he said, like, look, if we use other marks of morality, like intelligence as a marker, that's not really a good way of dividing up the landscape here, because that doesn't kind of cast the net of morality in the optimal way that we want to cast it, right? Because there might be some humans that have subpar intelligence that we don't want to say are morally inferior. Uh, and, and there are animals who have subpar intelligence that we want to say that are members of the moral community. So that whole argument, I just thought was very convincing. Like, yeah, consciousness is what really matters when we're talking about morality here. Um, so I know that this is one view of animal ethics, uh, kind of utilitarian welfare view, I guess you could summarize it by. Uh, so, so there are a couple of questions that I just wanted to ask you about this. And then I wanted to maybe juxtapose that view with the, the, the rights view that's advocated by people like Tom Reagan. Um, one question that I have about Singer, and I just want to make sure that I'm correct about this, is when what Singer, he's, what he's not saying, right, is he's not saying that animals should be endowed with exactly the same moral rights as humans, right? Doesn't he have this principle of equal consideration of interests where the idea is that, yeah, like identical interests must be given equal moral weight. So insofar as animals have the same interests as ours, they have the same rights as we do. So if they have interest not to suffer, um, then we have the right, uh, they have the right not to be subjected to suffering in the same way that humans can. But humans also have interests over and above the interests of animals. We're endowed with self-awareness. We can think about the future. We can contemplate our own mortality and death and things like this. So because of that, Singer would say like, hey, if there's a human and a cat in a burning building, you should save the human. Like, the human does in some sense have higher moral worth. Does that sound right? Am I interpreting Singer correctly? Yeah. So in some ways, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Singer doesn't talk about rights at all. So he's not saying okay. that interests will grant any particular sorts of rights, but he does think that the way that we treat other beings is going to be based on their interests and those interests are going to be based on their capacities for pleasure and suffering in different kinds of conditions. So you're definitely correct about the fact that it doesn't mean that we should be treating animals and humans in the exact same way. What it means is if an animal and a human are both experiencing the same amount of pain, that our moral sort of obligation to reduce that pain will be the same in either case. And the fact that the pig is experiencing the pain doesn't decrease it versus the fact that a human is experiencing the pain. But if it's the case that there is some features of humans that make their pains more severe, then absolutely we should be using that to prioritise but it could also go the other way. So I know some people come up with this idea, they think that humans probably experience pains more severely because we're able to think about, you know, ourselves as a being suffering. We're able to think about, you know, the pain continuing into the future. But people have pushed back on that the other way and said, yes, but we're also able to think about the context of the pain. We're able to put ourselves into a mental state, remembering a time when we weren't in pain or that it will be over soon in the future. So we might go to the dentist and you have a painful procedure there and you're just sitting there just going, okay, I'm going to get through it. It will be over soon. Whereas an animal at the vet might actually be suffering a lot more in that same procedure because that's all it has in that moment. That pain is overwhelming it and there's nothing else that it can think about to alleviate it. So it's sort of a more open empirical question, I guess, as to which way that goes. But the point is, I guess, is that we need to, for each individual being, investigate what are the pleasures and the suffering that it's experiencing, and then how should we alleviate those and not consider based on its species, but based on its particular individual capacities. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So another question I had on Singer's position is, does this kind of argument entail vegetarianism? I know that it definitely entails the abolition of things like factory farming, where you're subjecting animals to just unreal cruelty for the sake of relatively trivial gustatory pleasures. And I know that I think Singer's a vegetarian, but, but it seems to me that his kind of argument here is compatible with, you know, animals living on a free range farm, being served a very good life, and then being subjected to a painless death at their end of their life, and then we can eat their meat. Is his argument kind of compatible with that way of looking at it? Yeah, so one thing that Singer certainly doesn't concern himself with is the fact that death could be harmful for an animal in that way. So from a Singer point of view, you don't cause any suffering during death if you've got a humane euthanasia. Um, the animal doesn't suffer at all, therefore it's not being harmed, and therefore the welfare isn't a problem. And so in that case, it's never 
it's never a problem to kill an animal. He thinks that it's different for humans because humans have future-directed interests and a sense of themselves as an integrated whole over time that most animals seem to lack. So he would consider that killing a human is bad for its interests in the way that killing an animal is not. And so the treatment of the animal while it's alive is much more important than whether or not we shorten its life. And so from that point of view, an animal that's kept and raised very well and then killed humanely would be acceptable. I think the caveat to that in most of the current situations is it's just that basically doesn't exist. And so that doesn't, yeah, it's like a fantasy. Yeah. The worry is that a lot of people use this as a pushback against sort of arguments for vegetarianism or veganism. And they say, oh, but it would be okay if we, you know, for meat that was only raised humanely, but almost none of those people are actually doing that. They're just, so it seems to be, um, it's one of these things, I guess, that meat that was purely raised that way is much, much more expensive and would be available at a much lower scale than what we currently have. So it would make, mm-hmm. I guess, meat consumption more of a luxury item rather than a day-to-day. Yeah, when people ask me, in 200 years from now or whatever, what's going to be something that was completely morally accepted in today's day and age that's going to be universally frowned upon in the future? And it seems like factory farming is at the top of that list. Are, are you yourself a, a vegetarian or... Yeah. So I'm a vegetarian with vegan leanings, I guess. So I'm in the transitioning phase and not perfect all the time. But yeah, I've been a vegetarian for 25 years now. Um, So a very, very long time since I last ate any meat. I don't eat any eggs and mostly don't eat dairy as well. And yeah, it's, I mean, partially at the time I was quite young when I became vegetarian. And a lot of that was just based on my own kind of, I guess, emotional response to it. I just felt disgusted by eating meat. I was reaching this point where I I was too young to realize that vegetarianism was an available option, but I found eating meat really difficult. And so I'd have to read a book or watch TV while I was eating. So I wasn't thinking too hard about what I was eating. And when I was about 13, I sort of heard about this idea of vegetarianism and came into my head and I was like, oh, this is something I could do. And that would make my meals a lot more pleasant for me. Uh, So I went home and told my parents that I was going to stop eating meat and they were very lovely and supportive and just told me that I needed to learn a lot of recipes to cook vegetarian food. At the time, there wasn't much available in terms of now you can get these, you know, vegan sausages and all these sort of meat substitutes. Then it was very much learning how to cook lentil bakes and tofu lasagnas and things like that. And so they basically said, you know, I've got to learn how to feed myself nutritiously, but they supported the fact that I was going to not eat meat. And one of my sisters very quickly followed suit as well. So sort of had this little vegetarian contingent within the family. Mm, Nice. Yeah, I'm kind of in a moral conundrum, I guess, because like, I find a lot of these arguments for animal rights and animal ethics compelling, but I continue to be a carnivore. So I don't know, part of me is hoping that that kind of lab-grown meat stuff takes off in time where I don't have to live with that hypocrisy anymore. It's the same thing with Singer's arguments for uh, welfare as well. Like his shallow pond thought experiment, stuff like that. I find that utterly convincing. And yet I definitely should be giving more to charity than I do. Um, it's just what it is. Yeah. So, yeah. This kind of weakness of will, I think, is very common. And I certainly sympathize in that, you know, I said that I haven't completely given up dairy. And really my sticking point has been cheeses because the vegan cheese range is a lot less appealing than, you know, in comparison <laughs> to its sort of natural counterpart. And so I do occasionally still eat cheese. And one of the things that I've been really hoping for is that they've got um, some programs that are looking at growing microbial uh, proteins that are essentially identical to the milk proteins you'd get from dairy and making Mm -hmm. them microbial-based cheeses, which would be sort of very similar or same in taste and texture. And Mm. that's something that I've been really wanting to come through because I think if that was available, you know, I'd be willing to spend a bit more money and go to a bit more trouble to obtain these things. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, without them available, it can be difficult sometimes to completely happy with the substitutes even when you know that it's morally the right thing to do it can be hard because i think as well as the cognitive aspect there's also this emotional aspect to making your moral decisions and if you don't really feel the force of it if you don't feel that sense of guilt or disgust when you're doing the wrong thing it's very hard to tell yourself to stop doing it yeah there is this huge gap between like doing good and feeling good right like it's easy to uh something Peter Singer talks about as well, well, right? It's easy to feel good, but doing good a lot of times doesn't feel as good. 
like doing the most good, Singer will say, might involve spending all of your money on malaria nets so you can save as many children as possible on the other side of the world. But that doesn't feel as good as using a smaller amount of money to help like one person in your neighborhood, you know, and it's easy to feel like you're doing all kinds of good on social media and the internet when you're not really doing anything, but it's just all performative and stuff like that. So yeah, that's yeah. right. When you start thinking about what it is that motivates our moral behavior, then it does come down to very much these sort of pro-social emotions that we have. And they're just triggered much more strongly when we interact with more immediate causes and things that are more familiar to us. And it's why, you know, one of the interesting things in the animal welfare sphere is that most of the money that goes into animal welfare charities goes to pets. Um, so, you know, things like rehoming shelters and that kinds of things, they get a lot more money compared to factory farm charities get very, very little, whereas that's where most of the suffering actually is. So, again, it's just that pets are what people are sort of conditioned to think about. They have this strong connection to, whereas farmed animals, they're at a distance and the scale of this large amount of suffering is usually difficult for people to kind of comprehend or take on board. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, this is one good thing about cosmopolitanism and social media I think that we can be exposed immediately to suffering on the other side of the world that we would otherwise maybe not care about. And, you know, it's an open question as to whether that is properly motivates us, but it's maybe one good aspect of it. Um, One question that I had about sentience being the mark of morality is that it seems to be hard to know where to draw the line of animal sentience, right? Like where, where does the light of consciousness come on? Are ants sentient? You know, uh, I'm a, very favorable to panpsychism, panpsychism, panpsychism being the idea that consciousness is everywhere, maybe everything's sentient. Um, so this question as to where to draw the line at animal sentience, uh, I think, is a really interesting question. You know, when I was just thinking about this, one potential f- factor here it might just be the manifestation of physical behavior, but that doesn't seem to be sufficient because, you know, there are plants that manifest physical behavior. They don't seem to be conscious. And then it, it might even be that physical behavior is not even uh, necessary to prove that something's sentient. Like what if there's some, uh, you know, AI that's conscious in some data warehouse at the, at the bottom of some MIT laboratory or something, right? It's not manifesting physical behavior. Um, so how do you think about, uh, how to test as to what, whether an entity is sentient and how to know when an entity is sentient? I read one of your short articles on this about octopuses being sentient, where apparently now there's more evidence that, yeah, octopuses are sentient. And then I think you you outlined a bunch of different ways in which we might be able to promote octopus welfare based upon our understanding of their consciousness. Could you just kind of like maybe say a few words about that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So it is a really interesting subject. And I mean, these are questions that are still very much open and very much debated. Uh, so the project that I'm working on at the moment at the London School of Economics is called The Foundations of Animal Sentience. And that's with um, my PI is Dr. Jonathan Birch, who has received a grant to sort of look at these questions. And sort of the foundational question of this project is just, you know, what does it mean for an animal to be sentient and how can we investigate the sort of the nature of sentience in different animals? And the idea being that consciousness may not just be this single thing or this single dimension, but it will have multiple dimensions, such as the ability to, you know, conceive of yourself as a unified being, the ability to integrate perceptual information, And what I think is the morally important part, which is this evaluative dimension, which is that ability to sort of uh, consider or categorize things as positive or negative, like pleasures or pains. And that seems to be what grounds the ability to suffer. So I guess when we're asking, you know, which animals are sentient, what we're really asking is which animals have this very specific valenced type of sentience where they can feel these positive or negative feelings, you know, things feel bad or they feel good to them. And that can be a whole range of different mental states. It doesn't just have to be pleasure and pain, but it's having that capacity that seems to be the interesting one. And so then what we're looking for is markers that an animal might be capable of experiencing this. And when we're doing this, it seems like there's yeah a whole lot of questions then about what count as markers and a huge amount of debate in all kinds of sort of scientific areas where people will say, I mean, even fish at the moment are subject to debate. I think most people now accept that the evidence for fish sentience is mostly positive, but some people will still push back and say, look, they don't have um, the physiological structures. So, you know, some people, instead of behavior, they want to look at the physiology of the animal and go, look, its brain isn't set up in a certain way. So, 
in humans, when we feel pain, it's activating a certain area of our brain. Fish don't have that part of the brain, therefore they can't feel pain. Other people sort of push back and say, well, look, there's probably multiple ways to realise a pain structure in the brain, and fish have other areas that seem to do the same sorts of things. And this is the same when we get to invertebrates as well. So, you know, brought up the work on octopuses. And again, I think most people now take octopuses to be sentient because they do have these extremely complex nervous systems, complex behaviours, adaptable lifestyles, ability to learn. They show flexible trade-offs in the face of um, damage or pain, what we would consider to be painful stimuli. And so, you know, it does seem like they do have it. And then you go on and do the further question, which is, I guess, what I'm interested in welfare science, which is, you know, given that they have this experience, what are the things in their world that bring them pleasure or suffering and how can we make more of the things that bring them the pleasure and less of the things that make them suffer and that's going to be highly dependent on the specific characteristics of the animal themselves yeah yeah so just read a quote from you you say quote they do not perceive color but rather the plane of polarization of light this is octopuses they exist within an aquatic environment that allows for sensitivity to chemical and mechanical cues we are not able to perceive this means that when considering their welfare their environmental conditions must be included Current recommendations for octopus husbandry refer to lighting brightness and appropriate day-night cycles, but have not considered light polarization. Uh, and, and then you go on, end quote. I just thought that was really cool because it seems like, especially when you're talking about something like octopi sentience, it's a kind of this like weird alien form of consciousness. So the question as to, you know, what promotes their welfare might be kind of especially difficult to imagine and to, and to make progress on. Um, yeah, I think that's right. That they're a really good case study because I think we get too comfortable with animals that are very similar to ourselves. And then we look yeah. at something like an octopus that its experience is so different. You know, it's got this kind of extended mind where it's got um, these nerve clusters at each of its eight arms that seem to be able to act autonomously from the main brain in some ways, you know, what it feels like for them to be able to have these kinds of senses, you know, the things in their world, the things they can sense that we can't even think about what it would feel like to sense it makes you have to sort of wonder what can we investigate. And one of the, I guess, shortfalls of animal welfare consideration in the past, I think, has been this anthropocentric sort of view where we've considered what are the things that are good or bad for us, and then we go out and see what animals do or don't like those things. And, I mean, we do try and ask them questions from their own point of view. We have preference tests where we can present an animal with two or three different conditions and see which one it likes more, how hard it will work to get something but if our imagination is constrained in which questions we're asking, then it may actually be the case that we're not hitting all the right marks. You know, animals can hear sounds that are above or below our perceptual thresholds. They can smell things that we can't smell. And I think in a lot of cases when we're housing animals, these are things that we're not thinking about. And the worry is that we're missing a lot of things that are actually more important to them than the things that we are thinking about because we're just limited by our own human point of view. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that anthropogenic point of view, that bias can be really dangerous for human welfare. Because if you're saying like, hey, fish, they don't have the same internal structure as, as humans and other human-like creatures, so they're probably not conscious. Well, it certainly seems like they're conscious when they're flapping. That certainly seems like there's some suffering going on, right? Um, so yeah, I thought also we could, um, thus far, it seems like We've just been talking about the kind of singer's utilitarian welfare perspective. I thought maybe we could also get this other rights perspective uh, on animal ethics under the table that's that's advocated by people like Tom Reagan and, and PETA, and then maybe move into a discussion of your paper, uh, No Room at the Zoo, Management Euthanasia. I thought this was a very intriguing paper. And you, and you talk about these two different competing views of animal ethics in that paper. So first, could you just expound upon what is this rights perspective because you know we're just talking about how on singer's view singer doesn't think that humans should be treated exactly the same as animals and get exactly the same rights but isn't it the case that on this rights perspective they actually do think that like no humans should be or animals should be granted really the same rights it would be completely impermissible to kill an animal without their uh, i guess they can't give their consent so you just can't kill an animal so you just say more about that yeah so i mean the rights view certainly comes in a lot of different flavors, I guess, and different strengths. So uh, Tom Reagan's is one of the sort of the first, I guess, he was one of the first people to write on animal rights in this sort of way, and he grounded it in this idea of animals being a subject of a life, that they have 
not only sentience, but this kind of ability to have sort of minimal plans and desires for their own future, an integrated sense of self. And so being that subject of a life means that they have certain rights as regards that life. And so for him, they are things like rights to liberty, um, sort of their, their own autonomy, rights to life is always a really important one, and right to be free from suffering. Um, some other writers, so say Alistair Cochrane has written on uh, interest-based rights where he thinks that what you have rights to is to have your interests met, which would be something, I guess, a little bit closer to utilising the sorts of things that Singer talks about. So he would argue that animals don't have an intrinsic interest in freedom, for instance, because they don't have an interest in freedom, though they aren't able to conceive of their own freedom. It's only an instrumental goal towards other things that they do have interests in, like having appropriate food or shelter or environmental variety or something like that. And so when we think about animal rights, what we're really thinking about is they have the right to be treated so that their needs and their desires are met. So yeah, it depends yeah, which rights we have, but the right to life comes out almost always as one of the primary ones. That, mm. And that, that is the difference from the utilitarian perspective, I think, that you get this idea that animals have a right to stay alive, whereas utilitarians will often say that they're not harmed because they don't suffer when they die. And so from that point of view, uh, so in the paper that you mentioned, in some of my other work, I guess I push back on this a little, is that, you know, I come from a utilitarian perspective myself, but I think that you can still make sense of there being a harm in death for an animal, even from a utilitarian point of view, because harms aren't only infliction of suffering, they could also be deprivations of pleasures. And so when you think of an animal being deprived of something that's good for it, so, I mean, this comes in a lot when you think about factory farming, you think of animals that live in unnatural conditions and they're being deprived of things that they would really enjoy, like um, access to you know, grasses to snuffle around in. So pigs really enjoy rooting behaviour where they use their nose to turn over the soil. When they're kept on concrete, they're unable to do that. And so things like this, you're like these opportunities that they lack. And in a way, we can see death as a way of taking away these opportunities too, all these future life experiences that an animal potentially could have are being removed from it. And so in that way, there is still some harm being done. Yeah, yeah. And in and, and this paper, No Room at the Zoo, you kind of apply that basic line of reasoning to management euthanasia, I think, right? So what, what uh, just for the listeners, what is management euthanasia and how does it differ from traditional euthanasia, yeah, specifically so, in the context of zoos? Yeah. So, I mean, traditionally euthanasia, I mean, from the very term refers to a painless killing or a death of an animal. And usually it's used in a case where an animal is suffering or unwell. So when we think of euthanasia, it's often an animal that is very, very sick or injured and is going to have very poor quality of life. And so in that sense, the euthanasia is meant to be in the interests of the animal. And even people with animal rights theories like Tom Reagan would accept that in those cases, if the animal were able to, it would choose this death because of the sort of the suffering that it's going to face in the end of its life. So this is usually taken as fairly uncontroversial. Mm. And what came up about several years ago now is that um, some zoos have been euthanizing healthy animals for the purposes of their collection management. And so this was made pretty famous. There was a giraffe in a zoo in Denmark. His name was Marius. And he was euthanized just because he was a young male and the zoo didn't have any space for any more young male giraffes and none of the surrounding zoos had space for a young male giraffe. And so when this animal, when this young giraffe reached the age that he would usually disperse away from his parents, they humanely euthanized him and then used it as an education opportunity for the zoo. They actually performed uh, dissection of the animal and autopsy uh, in front of the public so people could watch it and learn about giraffe anatomy. And this was extremely controversial, so there was a lot of uproar about this, uh, mainly about the fact that an animal had been killed that was otherwise healthy, and this was considered to be sort of a really bad wrongdoing on the part of the zoo to have taken away this animal's life. And so there were people on both sides of it arguing that you know, this animal's right to life had been violated and on the other side arguing that it was fine because it was a humane euthanasia, the animal never suffered, he lived a normal life up until the moment of his death, he was happy and then he was just gone. And so, yeah, I guess I was interested in this debate because it was taken as given that if you're sort of this welfare-based utilitarian kind of person that you should accept that this was fine and if you're a rights theorist you should be condemning the act. And although I didn't want to come down in the specifics of whether or not 
you know, it was right in this particular circumstance. I did want to say that that's an oversimplification because of this idea of killing being a harm for animals, depriving them of their positive future experiences. So I think that it was wrong to say that, look, the cost is zero for the animal. You know, even from a utilitarian perspective, you have to say, well, the cost is all the lost opportunities that it has. Um, what I don't say is that cost makes the act impermissible necessarily. So what it means is that's a cost to weigh up when we're calculating the costs and benefits of that action. And there are a lot of things to say about, you know, the ways in which zoos can manage their resource budgets, the, the other things you can do with that same amount of space or money that could be given to other animals or used for conservation programs or, you know, to further other aims of the zoo, the education, all these sorts of things. And so I think, you know, they are extremely complex calculations to do. But what we shouldn't be doing is assuming that the euthanasia doesn't have a sort of a negative number when we're putting this into that calculation. Right. It's not just completely clear cut on the welfare utilitarian view that this is completely fine management euthanasia from a moral point of view. It, it's, it's more yeah. complicated than that. That's right. Yeah. So it's going to be highly context dependent, I think, on you know, when it's going to be OK and when it's not. And the people engaging in this practice of management euthanasia, right, they'll argue that this is justified because all of the alternatives oftentimes are worse. That's one point that you make in the paper, right? Like, so, so sometimes there'll be uncontrolled breeding within the context of zoos. This will lead to a surplus of animals. And then at that point, you have to ask, what do we do with the surplus? And there's various options. Releasing them to the wild can be bad, you say, because there's not a good chance that they might survive or be adapted for that. Um, it oftentimes isn't viable to send them to other zoos and stuff like that. So isn't, is that kind of the basic line of reasoning that's using, usually invoked to justify the moral legitimacy? Yeah, well, that's right, is that you know, life for this animal is not necessarily likely to be that good because, like you say, release to the wild is, doesn't go very well. It requires a huge amount of resource investment to be successful and often isn't, and it's usually quite a low welfare state for the animals that are released. Um, sending to other zoos only pushes the problem back. Eventually you're going to reach carrying capacity across all the zoos, even if any one zoo doesn't. Um, often what happens is animals will then get sent to substandard zoos because they're the ones that have more space or are looking for more animals. And so you get sort of these, you know, little more like roadside zoos that are much more lower welfare standards and you don't want your animals to end up there. Or the animals will just have to be pushed into more crowded housing or something at the zoo that they're in. And then people mm -hmm. are like, you okay, well, we should be restricting breeding more. And that comes with its own set of problems too. Restrictions on breedings, A, aren't perfect. So, you know, animals can still breed when they're not supposed to. And it can harm the animals to restrict their breeding as well. You can either be using, you know, hormonal contraceptives, which can cause problems with disease later in life. You might be separating animals, which denies them a whole lot of behavioral opportunities. And so, yeah, people sort of saying, I guess, that, it's not clear quite black and white. There are a lot of things that could be worse. And a lot of people would say that, yeah, allowing the animals to breed and giving the parents this sort of opportunity for the quality of life and the welfare boost they get from experiencing breeding behaviours might actually outweigh the deficit that you get from losing the young animal when you have to euthanise it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought this was a very interesting paper because, you know, usually I just I'm used to thinking about traditional euthanasia within the context of humans, and that itself is morally controversial. I myself come from more of a utilitarian point of view, so I think that something like traditional euthanasia should be legal in certain contexts, you know, especially if you're talking with someone like a terminal disease, their prospects for having a good life aren't, you know, objectively, reasonably that high. They should have the right to uh, engage in assisted suicide. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about management euthanasia where the, a being isn't sick. Uh, yeah, that's a more morally complicated question. So, so another paper uh, in which you explore animal welfare is this paper, Two Conceptions of Animal Welfare. Uh, I thought this was an interesting paper as well. So I guess there you're arguing against, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this what's called the natural behavior criteria for welfare. So, so first, what is the natural behavior criteria for welfare? And uh, what are some weaknesses of this criteria for, for animal welfare? Yeah, so it's very common when people are thinking about animal welfare to think that having the ability to perform their natural behaviour is a really important part of welfare for an animal. And so uh, for a very long time, there was a, 
a version of a welfare framework called the Five Freedoms that was very commonly used in zoos. And essentially it's got a number of freedoms, so freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from uh, pain, injury and disease, freedom from fear and distress, freedom from discomfort, and then freedom to perform natural behaviour. And this came out of a farm animal context where it was freedom to perform normal behaviours, but that's taken in the zoo context usually to mean the natural behaviours of the animal sort of as it would in the wild. Right. And so the idea is that, that, you know, that's sort of one of the five most important things for ensuring welfare that an animal performs its natural behaviour. And there's been this kind of pushback on this because it's just, I mean, there's a lot of conceptual issues on what natural behaviour even means, what the comparison class is, you know, what's mm. natural and what's not when you've got animals existing in a range of environments who perform all kinds of behaviours. But even more than that, why we should think that natural behaviour is linked to welfare. So there's a lot of behaviours that are very natural but that we don't really think are welfare-enhancing. And we think of, you know, predator avoidance behaviour and disease behaviours, aggression between conspecifics, all these sorts of things. You know, when animals are in the wild, their welfare isn't necessarily that good. And I think that's... they're fighting for survival all the time, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> like right. that's, that's their natural state. <laughs> so there can be this tendency for people to think, I think, that life in the wild is very idyllic and that animals have a great time all the time that you've just got king of pride rock sort of lying there and but actually right. you know, the wild can be pretty rough and so to think that just because something's natural that it's going to be better for an animal seems like a very simplistic view i guess it's and almost so, like let's put let's place humans back in the state of nature it's like that's your natural <laughs> habitat right go yeah, ahead be happy that's right so most people uh, don't tend to believe that that's true. They think that, yeah, the things that we've done to improve our environments in the sort of artificial ways probably actually make our lives better. And there's no reason to think that for animals that not, not, might not be true as well. And mm -hmm. so I guess yeah, what I'm interested in is thinking about which aspects of a natural behavior make it beneficial. Because, I mean, it's definitely true that a lot of behaviors that are natural for animals do seem to improve their welfare. I, I was talking before about, you know, this rooting behavior for pigs, um, hens, dust bathing is another big one, that they do seem to have these behaviors that it's important for them to perform. And so natural behavior might be this useful heuristic to think about, but not in itself what's valuable. And I guess if you come back to this sort of welfare perspective and this, um, this idea of this sentience, this utilitarian point of view, then we think about, well, which are the behaviors that cause an animal to feel happy or the behaviors that the absence of causes them to feel frustrated or causes them to suffer. And so it's, you know, in this paper, I'm trying to tie back this idea of natural behavior to this idea of animal welfare as being this subjectively experienced kind of state of the world that an animal has pleasures and it has pains. It has all these positive and negative mental states and some behaviors will be enhancing for its welfare and some won't but the word natural might be doing a bit of harm rather than good here because it focuses to just think about what it's doing in the wild rather than which behaviours will specifically make it feel good, which is the right. thing that I think we should be thinking about if we want to improve its welfare. Right, so in the paper you, you say that there are all these critiques of the sort that you are just mentioning of this natural behaviour criteria, but it still continues to be pretty predominant in zoo practices. And you say that one reason that it's persisted has to do with this deeper conceptual disagreement about what welfare actually consists in. And you, you compare that subjective conception of welfare that I think we've been talking about with uh, what you call the teleological view of welfare. What, what exactly do you mean by that, the teleological view of welfare? So the teleological view is essentially this idea that an animal's welfare is its highest when it is flourishing in its species-typical and natural way. So it's this idea that an animal has a telos, which is kind of this almost species-typical essence that it strives towards and that its welfare is going to be well met when it's flourishing as the type of thing that it is and its welfare is going to be poor when it doesn't. And I guess, yeah, this is something that I'm pushing against for some of the reasons that I already described because it just seems like there are a lot of things that are natural or species-typical that aren't necessarily good for its welfare, that there just seems to be lots of counterexamples that most people would accept and even when I read, a lot of people endorse the teleological view, at least on its surface, and when you read deeper through their work, at some point they do accept this and they say, oh, of course I understand that there are some things that are natural that aren't good for welfare because they feel bad or something like that. And you're like, well, it seems like here what you're actually doing is endorsing a subjective idea of welfare. You're just kind of building this naturalness on top as a condition of welfare. But, you know, when it comes down to it, when you're pushing between these different options that an animal could be unnatural but happy 
or be unhappy but natural, most people would rather mm. have the former. And so I think yeah, that gives an idea for which one is really grounding welfare and which yeah. one matters to the animal. You know, if an animal's given a choice between being happy or being natural, you can pretty much guarantee that it's going to choose the thing that makes it happy. Right. Yeah, it is, it's easy to see how that natural behavior criteria kind of flows out of that teleological conception. And, and yeah, as you say, it's not just that natural behaviors can reduce welfare, like the predator avoidance stuff that we were talking about, but also unnatural behaviors can increase welfare. So just to read one quote, you say, there are also, quote, there are also unnatural behaviors that do not affect, negatively affect welfare. For example, I thought this was really interesting. Recent work with orangutan enrichment has provided them with computer gaming devices, and they seem to derive great benefit in terms of cognitive stimulation from interacting with these. Animal-computer interaction is an emerging field that looks to provide welfare benefits for animals through decidedly unnatural means, end quote. Yeah, that's right. And so this is something that I find really interesting, and there's work been happening with uh, Zoos Victoria, which is down in Australia, where I know they've been doing work with their orangutans, and they've been using some projection technologies as well. So what they can do is, because orangutans are like all the great apes, could be famously very destructive, what they can do is put projectors that, you know, project, I'm doing hand movements so you can see, but um, essentially project images and colours onto the ground where the orangutans are sitting, and the movements of the orangutans as they touch these will change what the projections are doing. So they can essentially, they can paint, or they can interact with these projections in certain kinds of ways that mm. allow them to, you know, play certain sorts of games. Um, or like I said, you know, do, I guess, a form of basic art. They can create sounds. And they do seem to really enjoy this. They're given the choice. They don't have to be there interacting with this portion of their exhibit, but they do. And it seems to be something that benefits them. And that doesn't seem to be a natural behavior at all, but something that they really do enjoy doing because probably because of the cognitive stimulation. I wonder if that kind of, like, do you think that equipping them with these technologies after a few generations might actually make them smarter? Like that's, that's not really, I know that's not natural evolution, but it's kind of cultural evolution in a way, like you're introducing them to all these new technologies. Could that actually make them smarter over generations or just, just take a lot longer than that? I mean, in terms of the cultural evolution, that certainly seems possible. Uh, the sort of enculturation of great apes is something that has been observed fairly frequently in a lot of um, you know, language experiments and all these mm -hmm. situations where chimpanzees in particular have been mostly studied, where they're raised by humans or in very human-centric environments, and they seem to be capable of uh, all sorts of things that wild chimpanzees perhaps wouldn't be able to do because their minds are shaped in different ways from a very, very young age. And what that implies is they might have a relatively plastic mental development, the same that we do, that allows them to sort of develop down certain paths if they're given particular kinds of inputs that the wild just doesn't necessarily provide for them. And so you'd see the same sort of thing, I think, in any situation. And in these kinds of situations, if there's some selective benefit to behaving like that, you'd even see a genetic evolution catching up to it. So if it was the case that the animals that were the most successful in these programs were the ones most likely to breed in future, then you'd probably end up seeing the ones that have the greatest capacity would be the ones that would go through. So... Right. Certainly selectively breed. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. All right, so another final paper that I want to uh, talk about is this paper, De-Extinction and Animal Welfare. So this is very Jurassic Park-esque. Uh, <laughs> so you, you explain the three main, there's three main de-extinction methods. So we're talking about bringing an extinct animal back into existence like a woolly mammoth. Um, yeah, so you talk about de-extinction. You, you explain uh, why it's difficult to measure the welfare of de-extinct species. You talk about different potential benefits of de-extinction and weigh them against the, the, the cost to welfare, the welfare harms of de-extinction. I thought maybe we could run through some of that. Uh, so first, you say that there are three de-extinction methods. There's selective breeding, there's genetic engineering, and cloning. Could you just kind of briefly distinguish between those? Yeah, so essentially uh, cloning is when you take, if you've got cellular material from the extinct animal and you extract the cellular genetic material from there and place it entirely into an egg and basically breed that animal through. So say you've got a mammoth, you might be able, and we don't have um, full mammoth information at the moment, but if you did, you could extract the nucleus from a cell that you've got from a sort of deceased mammoth, uh, put that nucleus into a developing embryo, 
um, put that inside a surrogate animal, so it would be an elephant in this case, and what would be born would be a genetically identical clone to the original mammoth. Uh, this has been done. Uh, Dolly the sheep, I think, was a really famous uh, cloned animal. I think she was the first right. one that survived that was, yep, genetically identical to her parent but wasn't birthed from that same parent, and so that's using a surrogate animal as well. Whereas genetic engineering builds on this essentially by taking what genetic material we have of the extinct species, so if this would be used for something like a mammoth, and then building in, you know, filling the gaps with the genetic material of closely related species. Um, this is something that they did in Jurassic Park, actually, where they talk about that, that they've extracted the DNA that they had from the mosquitoes and they filled in amphibian DNA and bits and pieces where they had missing links. Right, okay. Yeah, so the idea is that if you don't have a full genetic complement, you could try and take the, the genes that most closely match in the current relatives, the genes that most closely match the traits of the existing the extinct animal, and then can use these same techniques, then you use the genetic material, put it into an embryo, and then um, develop that through. But it's not going to be a genetically identical copy of some past animal because you've had to splice the DNA. Okay, yeah, it's not the exact same species in that case? Yeah, that's right. So some people would say that it's not because the genetic information is different. So it's not only is it not a clone of an individual, but it's not even going to be species. I see what you're saying. Right, and then uh, selective breeding? So selective breeding... It's essentially just taking the closest living relatives you have and just breeding them for traits that are very much like what we've lost. So if you wanted to bring back mammoths from elephants, you'd essentially just breed the largest and the hairiest elephants together with the biggest tusks until you started getting something that looked pretty mammoth-like. And this, in this case, you don't have anything even close to the same species because obviously the mechanisms by which these sort of phenotypes are going to arise are going to be completely different than what they necessarily were in the original species. Um, they're all going to be based on our external perceptions of the way that these animals worked. And in these cases, they're more interested in something like an ecological surrogate of the same species, I think. So you're like, if the reason that we want to bring back mammoths is because you want something really large to live on the tundra and to shape that environment, having a really big hairy elephant that does well in the cold is going to be good enough. It doesn't have to be a mammoth in any sort of deeper sense of the word. And so these sorts of things have been used, um, what we talked about, for bringing back, so the quagga, which is a relative of the zebra, um, so back breeding from zebras to try and get something more like that, and some of the extinct cattle species as well. So how scientifically feasible, I mean, I guess it is scientifically feasible given that we've done it with Dolly and the, the example of selective breeding that you just gave, but in particular with cloning and genetic engineering, like how sophisticated or advanced is this technology right now? So it's happening. Um, just trying to think fairly recently they got, I want to say, a black-footed ferret. There was certainly something recently where it was done with an endangered species and it was heralded for being quite a successful example of this and actually probably the best example of where these technologies are useful. But, yeah, we are able to clone animals. It's still fairly, it's I guess, in its infancy as a technology because the animals that are bred often subject to a lot of illnesses, their lifespans are shorter, um, they're much more likely to die before they're born all these sorts of things. But the technologies are getting better all the time. The success rates are improving. Uh, the main sort of bottleneck on this at the moment is actually making sure that you have sufficient genetic material. Mm. So, okay. and an appropriate surrogate. So that's the other thing, I guess. So the things for mammoths in particular, again, mammoths went extinct long enough ago that we don't have any full DNA chains from them anymore. Even the frozen ones, when you pull it out, the DNA is degraded and we're getting sort of little snippets of their DNA that we're having to piece together. And that's where you talk about genetic engineering using something like an elephant genome. Uh, something like a thylacine, uh, so Australia's uh, marsupial tiger. Uh, basically, they went extinct less than 100 years ago, so preserved specimens there are likely to still have full DNA intact. And if you were able, you'd be able to create an embryo. The problem with the thylacine is that its closest relative is the Tasmanian devil, which is much, much smaller. And so... It might be very difficult to have a surrogate birth from a Tasmanian devil for a thylacine, even though they do give birth to very small marsupial young. Um, you need to have very specific types of milk concentration things to raise them. So there are a lot of limitations in what you can do. Uh, the same you know, with mammoths. If you're birthing baby mammoths out of elephants, a mammoth is just a much larger animal and you're likely to have many more complications and sort of these maternal-fetal incompatibilities and difficult births. Mm. 
Yeah. So in your paper, you talk about all these kind of traditional ethical concerns related to de-extinction. And then you go on to say, yeah, all these have been talked about. I want to focus on the welfare concerns in particular. So just to read another quote about some of the traditional ethical concerns, you say, for example, uh, what, regarding de-extinction projects, whether this sort of targeted precision conservation is in conflict with a more holistic form of ecosystem conservation, Adams 2017, there are suggestions that resources spent on de-extinction programs could result in decreased support for conservation of extant species uh, through loss or actual or potential sources of funding. So like not spending, yeah, too much money in that, not enough money elsewhere. Campaigna, et cetera, are concerned with the discussion of de-extinction could give the impression that extinction is reversible and will therefore diminish the gravity of the human annihilation of species. But that was really interesting. Like, we'll say, yeah, it doesn't matter if, if uh, species become extinct, we'll just bring them back, right? Um, uh, Morin, this is one that I thought of. Morin expresses concerns that release of de-extinct species carries the risks of invasiveness, disease transmission, and unforeseen species interactions. That's what I was thinking of. Like, how is this going to affect the broader ecosystem? Could it upset the natural order of things? Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say with respect to those traditional ethical concerns, but... Uh, yeah, so yeah, I ahead. think that they're really important. Uh, I just... Yeah, in the paper, I sort of, I guess, breeze through them a little bit because I think a lot of other people are already talking about this. You know, there's already already a question of whether we're doing too much in terms of targeted species conservation as opposed to ecosystem conservation, even for other types of species. So, you know, when we talk about protecting giant pandas or something like that, that, you know, a lot of money might going into, go into saving this one species when we've got entire rainforest ecosystems disappearing and that, you know, focusing on these large-scale efforts are probably much more beneficial in total and so when you put a lot of money into bringing back something that's already gone and potentially the ecosystem that it used to exist in being gone as well, then you may not have the kinds of benefits that you're actually wanting to have when you're thinking about conservation in terms of preserving biodiversity or anything like that. And so there is that worry. But yeah, like I say, I think people are focusing a lot on that. And there's a lot of papers where these are brought up. And for some reason, the animal welfare concern just seemed to be side noted in these tiny little lines at the end of papers where they're like, oh, there also might be a problem of animal welfare, but we'll probably figure that out. And <laughs> Seems like kind of a big issue. <laughs> yeah. To me, I thought that these concerns are probably unique. And because I guess people took it to be that the animal welfare concerns were just the same as any conservation project or any breeding project and so they didn't think they needed special discussion but to me i thought that there were things about a de-extinction project that seemed to be i guess unique challenges for animal welfare that were worthy of discussion so what are some of these welfare specific issues you talk about welfare issues as they relate to cloning as they relate to captive rearing as they relate to reintroduction could you say some things about that yeah so the cloning, as we've covered that a little bit already, the idea that these technologies, because of the, the sort of our lack of knowledge on them at the moment, do often result in animals that have a lot of health problems or die early, uh, that the surrogate mothers often die as well, that you can have, you know, these sort of maternal fetal incompatibilities. And so all these things are problems, and I think even worse for de-extinction programs, because we don't have good genetic material, we don't have perfect surrogates. And so if they're not working well for the same species, they're going to go even worse across different species. Um, in terms of captive rearing, I think our biggest problem is lack of knowledge and lack of the right kinds of resources. So again, mammoths, uh, we talk about that a lot because they tend to be the flagship. When we talk about de-extinction, that's what everyone wants to do is bring back the mammoth. And when we think about mammoths, we think about an animal that is a very large, very long-lived animal that lives in large and complex social groups with a very specific kind of um, environment, a very specific kind of diet, and there's sort of Arctic tundras. And if we're bringing back, say, the first one, we've got this single little mammoth that we bring back. He's got no social group. You know, we're not talking about a big network of other animals that can pass down the culture of how to be a mammoth, of how to find food, of how to socially interact all these things are lost and it's not at all clear how we how we'd get them back that when you've got an intelligent or complex animal where a lot of its behaviors are learned particularly if they're learned from other members of the species if we don't have access to that then how are we going to build it you know you can't create a sort of a multi-generational social group from scratch I mean, some of the food sources they relied on might not even be existing anymore so we may not even be able to get them what they need for their proper nutrition and we don't know how to find out what that is, that, you know, the historical sciences 
do the best they can with the limited amount of information and the inferences that we can make. But in the cases where we want to make sure that we've got these really targeted husbandry and housing for species that we're bringing back, it's extraordinarily difficult to know how we'd collect the right information without a lot of trial and error. And that trial and error is going to involve poor welfare outcomes for the animals that are being trialed on. Right. Yes. So then there are also like benefits to de-extinction that you talk about. There's ecological benefits and improved ecosystem uh, with the restoration of what you say are called keystone species, aesthetic benefits, just uh, you say, quote, human preference for the presence of such species, restorative benefits that we are in some sense righting the wrongs we have committed and sending such species extinct by bringing them back and then scientific benefits leading just to more knowledge. And so, right. So then you weigh these benefits with these negatives that you're just talking about. And you ultimately argue that given our current technology, the negatives kind of outweigh the benefits. Is that a correct reading? Yeah. It seems to me that yeah, it's questionable how strong the benefits of these programs are going to be because, you know, we've already talked a little bit about the fact that you know, restoring single species into ecosystems is often not going to be as much of a conservation benefit as we would think it would be, um, particularly because they're often from ecosystems that don't really exist anymore. So, you know, it may be the case that for some species that have very recently gone extinct for which their ecosystems are rapidly degrading because of their loss, that might be a different case. But in most instances, you know, the allocation of resources there is probably not going to do as well as in these other cases. Um, Probably the main benefit is this human benefit, this idea that we just think it would be really, really cool to see mammoths again. And, you know, I think it would be amazing. Yeah, that's right. It seems like it would be absolutely fantastic, and I don't deny that. But I think that if we cause a lot of harm bringing that about, it certainly doesn't seem like our aesthetic preferences for just having really cool animals back in the world is enough to outweigh the harms that could be done to them in producing them. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. In Jurassic Park there's kind of an implicit argument against de-extinction as well, but it focuses on how human welfare might be negatively impacted by dinosaurs who eat the humans. But you're saying, yeah, maybe we should actually focus on the welfare of the de-extinct animals that we're bringing back. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's still anthropogenic from the, in Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's right. Although I think it's interesting, some of the later, the Jurassic world starts hinting a bit more at what it thinks they're like actually for the the animals themselves once they're brought back consider them more as agents i guess which has been an interesting sort of development but yeah this idea that these animals you know they are individuals that have their own interests and preferences that can you know experience suffering that can have lives that go quite poorly or go well for them and Mm. they're not just kind of tools in a scientific program and from that point of view you know we need to think very seriously about the costs that we're imposing on them bringing them back to life you know, whether that is essentially worth whatever it is that we think the benefits are going to be. If you're a Buddhist and you believe in reincarnation and rebirth, then you might just uh, be reincarnated into a non-human animal in the next life. So if you're just completely selfish, you might even care about animal welfare from that perspective. And you're into Buddhist metaphysics. Yeah, you don't want to bring back into existence any animals that are suffering terribly because, yeah, that's right. Someone's going to have to have their soul live through that. I was wondering, are there any people who are just against the existence of zoos altogether from an animal welfare, like ethics perspective? Yeah, there definitely are. Um, And I think this comes mostly from the animal rights perspective. I don't think people in the animal welfare tradition tend to think this so much. But the right to liberty, the right to freedom can be considered a very, very strong one and sort of an inalienable right to anyone who is an animal liberationist, I guess. So mm. PETA as an organization is probably a good example of that. There's a foundation called the Born Free Foundation. And, yeah, these are people who oppose any form of animal captivity, including zoos and wildlife parks. And sometimes I think more strongly than for some of the other domesticated animals because there is this sense, and this probably comes back to this teleological idea, but that these exotic non-domesticated animals somehow have this more intrinsic wildness to them that, you know, their naturalness needs to be established in a way that perhaps you know for our pet dogs and cats that they just don't have that same drive and so the idea i think is that these animals when they're being kept are somehow being harmed by the very fact of being kept in captivity i'm actually writing a paper on this at the moment it should be out hopefully within the next month or so but it's looking at this relationship between freedom and animal welfare and yeah sort of examining this argument that animals are being harmed just by the very fact of captivity rather than by the conditions of captivity. 
So, I mean, my own point of view for someone who's worked in zoos is that I think that we can keep animals well if we have species that we can provide their needs and that we can provide the right kinds of challenge and variety for them. I don't think the fact that they're held in captivity is necessarily going to be harmful to their welfare. It may be in practice if we fail to give them the right conditions, but that's not sort of intrinsic to captivity. That's just a side effect, I guess, of poor housing conditions. But there were people who would like to see all the zoos gone and all the animals, I guess, free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it does seem like if you're not adopting the rights perspective, but you're adopting the subjective welfare perspective, that pers you, it, it seems like you could argue from that perspective that maybe there should actually be more zoos, more humane zoos, because as we we're talking about, life in the wild oftentimes is just, you know, nasty, brutish, and short, to quote Thomas Hobbes, right? It's, it's a war for survival. So if we can create zoos where we give wild animals a habitat that kind of simulates the wild in many different respects, but they're not in danger of being eaten. Uh, it seems like that might increase their welfare. So maybe we should be investing in more zoos from that perspective, right? Yeah. So there are certainly people. So there's an interesting sort of emerging discipline. It's called welfare biology, and it's essentially looking at the welfare of wild animals. And, you know, how do we quantify how well or poorly wild animals are actually doing and what their lives are like and what could we do to improve their conditions? And some people think that essentially, yeah, the management of wild animals to improve their welfare is something that we should be trying to do, looking at cases where animals have really poor lives or have a lot of suffering and we could be giving them medical treatment, we could be making sure they have the right kinds of shelters, you know, particularly animals that have been had their environments sort of depleted by human interference, that we could be trying to provide them with the resources and even if not taking them into zoos in a strong sense at least, giving them more management than what they have in a way that provides them with better lives. And that, yeah, in the extreme possible case that if we could have these really, really great zoos with lots of space and lots of opportunities and the right food and everything else, that most animals would be better off there. And of course, you know, other people would argue very strongly against this because I think they would take the sort of animal's right to autonomy as being overwhelming to their right to welfare. But certainly seems that, yeah, you could give them very, very good welfare in a captive environment if you did it right. Yeah. And it, is that, that's the perspective I'm guessing that you would take? Like, what's your, what's your animal, what's your vision of an animal, like, utopia look like if we're, if we're looking at the ideal future of animal ethics and how we treat animals? Would it be more zoos, uh, factory-grown meat, the end of factory farming? Like, what is, what are our next big steps forward here in terms of uh, improving animal welfare? Yeah, so I definitely think the biggest one is the end of factory farming. I think when we consider the amount of suffering that is created for animals, I think factory farming is the number one thing. And so... it's. Insane. I watched a documentary recently about it, I forget the name of it, but it was really shocking. It was like, almost like unimaginably cruel. Yeah, that's right. Like the things that happen and just the numbers of animals that are passed through them every single year is astonishing, like, you know, multitudes more than the number of humans who have ever existed. And so, you know, we're talking about these huge scales of suffering and with the growth of aquaculture now that, you know, more fish and other sea creatures are being farmed, that they're being done in even bigger numbers and even denser and more crowded situations with less welfare concern because people still don't think about fish welfare very much that you could actually see things getting worse rather than better from that point of view. So, yeah, I think lab-grown meat is probably one of the ways in which this will really help because it does, I think, help people who have this sort of willpower issue where they kind of cognitively know that they don't want to support factory farming but find it difficult like to me. step away from meat. <laughs> yeah, people like yourself. That having artificial options available, these humane options, I think are probably going to be a really useful step forward. Already we can see with the rise of the sort of vegan products that are available, there does seem to be this kind of groundswell of veganism. You know, you can get a burger at KFC now, a vegan chicken burger there that's, you know, not an imitation of the real one, but, you know, certainly good enough and with all these things happening. that So, yeah, I certainly think that that's the big thing. You know, when we think of the number of animals that are kept in zoos, for instance, and, you know, the number of them that are actually suffering, I think it's just, you know, orders of magnitude lower than what we see in factory farming. But, you know, there are certainly animals that are suffering in zoos and there are some zoos that are absolutely terrible and that, you know, aren't looking after their animals well at all and that we need more regulation of that sort of thing. But, yeah, when we look at the numbers and the level of suffering, it just, yeah, doesn't even compare. The cognitive dissonance really becomes prominent for me when I just think about uh, how much I love my family's dog. You know, you know that a dog has 
a personality, uh, a, a whole range of personality, right? And it has a pretty sophisticated level of social intelligence. And we know, right, that a lot of these animals who are subjected to factory farming have the same level of sentience and intelligence, if not more so, than dogs, right? Like cows and pigs. So you wouldn't want something like that to happen. I get that dogs are domesticated and they have like this whole evolutionary history with humans. And yeah, that's makes us more emotionally uh, vulnerable to them. But from a moral perspective, there really is no difference there, it seems like. So, I mean, that just thinking about that for me really is uh, at least partially motivating. Yeah, I think one of the ways in which we work to try and, I guess, get people on side might be the wrong way of saying it, but, you know, trying to make people see what's actually happening to understand the reality of it is to help them understand what these animals are actually like because there are these sorts of disconnects in the way we draw circles around different groups of animals, the way that pet animals are seen as these kind of intelligent, interesting animals. Um, when they do surveys, people tend to rank things like sheep and cows as very unintelligent, they're stupid, slow, because that's the sort of, I guess, what we're sold as the idea to, you know, keep them separate in our head as something that we can eat. And so when you share videos online of cows playing with balls or making friends with each other, or, you know, pigs solving intelligent problems and, all these sorts of things allows people to see that these are animals that do have rich cognitive lives and rich emotional lives the same way as the animals that you know more well, the ones that you connect to in your home. And the idea being that, yeah, it might yeah, give a sort of emotional connection that sometimes can be lacking when this is happening at a distance with animal species that you just don't think too hard about. There was, a, there was another short paper you wrote about sheep intelligence, I think, that I checked out where sh sh apparently there's evidence that sheep are more intelligent than they've been made out to be in the past? Yeah, I mean, sheep have a particularly bad reputation, I think. So yeah. you know, often people would take sheep as being the example of just one of the dumbest mammals in the world. You know, when people think about it, they're like, oh, they just follow each other. They can't think through anything. They just don't do anything. They just sit around. And so the paper, so the paper I was writing was a response to another paper that was discussing all this evidence about sheep intelligence and saying, well, look, they can actually do a lot of things that you wouldn't think they could do. They have, you know, this sort of complex social intelligence, the ability to solve all these sort of problems that they come up against in their lives. They're not just these, you know, dumb one-dimensional animals. And in my paper I talk about, you know, that intelligence might be a little bit of a red herring because it's not, you know, if we've been discussing, it's not the intelligence that matters for the welfare of an animal. It's, it's sentience, it's ability, it's capacity to suffer. But where intelligence might matter is in motivating people to think about the animals in such a way as to give them more consideration. It does seem to be the case that when people consider an animal to be more intelligent, they also consider it to be of higher moral status, even if that sort of doesn't track a real moral property. It helps motivate people to treat those animals better, I guess. And so from that point of view, it's a useful thing to do to investigate what these animals can do and let people know so that they can I guess, yeah, create these emotional connections to them. Right. And even Singer would say that intelligence, it is kind of indirectly morally relevant insofar as it gives a being greater interests, right? Like a greater yeah. range of interests. Like if I have a level of self-awareness or intelligence where I can think about the future, I have interests that a being who doesn't have those things doesn't have. Yeah, that's right. So the, sort of the ways in which we want to consider those animals are going to matter a lot based on what their cognitive capacities are, what their ways of seeing the world are. So if they're able to sort of solve problems in a certain way, then there's mental challenges that they're probably going to need for their lives to have good welfare, for instance. And so, yeah, and that, I guess, yeah, when you're talking about factory farming situations, that makes those even worse because they're often, you know, quite impoverished environments with a lot of those challenges are lacking. Right. All right. Well, that is all I had, Dr. Browning. Uh, thank you again for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss this with me. Yeah, thank you very much for hosting me. It's been an interesting discussion.